0: You're listening to The Economics Review Podcast with your host, Adi Golcha. From Congress to Wall Street and finance to philosophy, tune into The Economics Review to hear from world-leading experts on current events and cutting-edge research. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to The Economics Review. Our guest today is a professor of economics at Duke University and a fellow of the Econometric Society. Holding a PhD in economics from the University of Wisconsin, he served as an expert witness in the students for fair admissions v. Harvard lawsuit before the Supreme Court. In addition to this, his broader research has focused on affirmative action in higher education, structural estimation of dynamic discrete choice models, and college major choice. It's my pleasure to welcome to the show, Dr. Peter Arcidiacono. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So firstly, I'd like to ask you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background and your research.
1: Well, so um, a lot of my work's been on higher education and that uh, centered from the beginning on choice of college major. And one of the striking things related from my own undergraduate experience and appears to be happening in lots of schools is uh, that expectations are different in different majors. So, uh, I'm not saying any major is easy, but um, it's clear that majors in the sciences and in economics uh, tend to give out lower grades and are accompanied by um, higher study hours, and that uh, naturally can link to things like affirmative action. So, a lot of my work's been on higher education, um, and I've been at you know Duke uh, over 20 years now, uh, doing work of that sort. Hi. I'm Stephen, and I am the host of the Simple English News Daily podcast. Every day, we tell you the most important stories from all over the world in just seven minutes. No opinion, no analysis, just seven minutes of facts to start your day, with business, politics, conflict, science, tech, and everything else from everywhere in the world. Simple English News Daily has been downloaded over a million
0: times. Join us. Search in your podcast app for Simple English News Daily. So, I'd like to start off today by talking to you about affirmative action. Um, recently, you served as an expert witness um, for Students for Fair Admissions before the Supreme Court, um, speaking out against affirmative action, which was uh, which allegedly disadvantages um, Asian American students um, at Harvard. As I understand it, you presented a personal as i understand it the personal rating was where um asian american students suffered the most um you presented a a hypothetical case of an asian american male with a 25% chance of admission to Harvard College. And according to you, the data showed that changing the applicant's race to white um, would increase his admissions chances chances to 36%, um, leaving all other factors constant. Changing this applicant's race to African-American would boost his chance to, of admission to 95%. Um, so Dr. Arcidiakono, could you please tell us uh, a bit more about what the data revealed in this case and how Harvard justified these discrepancies?
1: Sure, so there actually is another uh, case as well that I also served as an expert witness um, against University of North Carolina. And I took both these cases mainly because with so much of my research on affirmative action, a lot of the debate on affirmative action takes place in the binary, either being for it or against it. And I don't think that's necessarily the right way to look at the problem. Um, if you're for affirmative action, there might be a point at which you might no longer be supportive of it if the preferences go too far. But we can't have that conversation without knowing how big preferences are uh, for different groups. So in the Harvard case, um, you have both the seeing how big preferences are for African-American and Hispanic students so it's in more of the underrepresented minority category. But you also have this other aspect, which is the claim that Asian American applicants are discriminated against relative to similarly situated white applicants. That's different from the UNC case where there's no claim of Asian American discrimination. So that's sort of a a rough background on it. In terms of the actual findings, uh, it's, it's interesting to note the personal rating is certainly one channel for which Asian-American applicants are discriminated against. It's not the only channel, but it's, it's certainly uh, a large part of it. What's interesting about the personal rating is you see a clear penalty against Asian-Americans in it. This holds no matter what things you control for in the model. Um, my counterpart you know, did not produce any models to suggest otherwise. So, um, but part of the reason I brought up the UNC case is that UNC also has a personal rating. And admissions at UNC can roughly be divided into two parts, what goes on for their in-state admissions and what goes on for their out-of-state admissions. The distinction is important there because getting into UNC out-of-state is much, much harder. And there you see both for in-state applicants and for out-of-state applicants that... um, there's no penalty against Asian Americans in the personal ratings. So there's not this evidence that, uh, you know, Asian Americans are somehow personally deficient. You only see that in the Harvard case. And there's a reason for that, which is Asian Americans perform extremely well academically, much better than any other group. And that shows up in, in, some very interesting ways. The first is, while on average, Asian-Americans come from families that actually have slightly higher incomes than whites, that's actually not true for Harvard applicants. Why would that be the case? Well, low-income Asian-American families, their kids do really, really well. And so you have a much higher share of applicants who are are Asian-American with extremely impressive scores applying to Harvard, that you don't have at UNC, in part because North Carolina doesn't have as many Asian Americans in the in the in the first place. So uh, when you see something like this happening, how you know how does Harvard justify this? Uh, I don't feel like they have a justification. It was more of a take our word for it. All of the admissions officers sort of said, you know, we don't think that Asian Americans are personally deficient um some claims were made at trial that maybe it's in the letters of recommendation but they weren't able to show that uh it was just this is sort of you know what, what they said at the at the trial I, th- I have big problems with um that line of defense uh the other part of that is there's no link to the personal rating for any later outcomes so you know you can imagine the a similar situation occurring where, suppose a business decides, look, um, they get accused of discriminating against, say, African American applicants. Can you imagine a defense? Be uh, it's not that we're we're discriminating against um, Black Americans. They just scored poorly on our likability rating. We can't tell you. Um, that that likability rating matters for anything else. We can't show you, uh, and yes, these uh, African-American job applicants, uh, it appears like they should be just as likable as the white applicants, but they they happen to be scoring poorly on this likability rating. To me, uh, that's just a blueprint for discrimination. We can make up a rating uh, and then um, penalize people through the rating.
0: Yeah, I was I was going to say that um, if if that if that's the way it works, um, you know, that that might set a, a dangerous precedent. Um, so I wanted to get your take on, on a fundamental trade-off for selective colleges seeking racial diversity, given that there are disparities between the distributions of academic preparation for the populations of, of students of color and, and white or Asian students. So in the interest of diversity, the incoming student population is inevitably going to vary in terms of academic preparation under affirmative action. Um, Now, once students arrive at the college, these differences in preparation will have a tendency to manifest themselves, meaning that we'll either have to lower academic standards or have a significant proportion of students that perform quite poorly from an academic standpoint. Um, So in your research, um, which one appears more likely and is there anything we can do to reconcile or even eliminate this trade off in the long run?
1: So I, I think it's actually changing over time. I think that uh, you, in the past, it's been more the case, I think, that it it's people into particular majors. So you end up with um, majors that have uh, high demand, and those majors will be sometimes associated with courses that are more weed out courses. And that disproportionately is going to hit people who are coming in less prepared. And that will uh, intersect uh, with affirmative action uh so you know back in 2011 i wrote a paper that actually resulted in a protest here at duke and um, what that paper showed was the basic descriptive fact was that over half of the black males who started in stem or economics majors switched out as opposed to eight percent of white males they came in wanting to major in stem just like if not more, than their white male counterparts, but they switched out at a much higher rate. But that fact is sort of what got me in trouble. What should have gotten me out of the trouble and eventually, I think, calmed things down a bit, was that it, it had nothing to do with race. If you, once you conditioned on the fact that they were coming in with large differences in academic background, those racial disparities disappeared. So... Why do I think that these these things may be trending in a different direction? I think now, that, um, you know, with what happened with Floyd, I think a lot of um, schools are reconsidering how to think about race and thinking that it's a problem, that we um, there are not uh, very many African-American um, economics majors or physics majors. And that's where, well, how are we going to fix that? The easiest way to fix that is... Uh, to not be weeding people out, which invariably means changing, uh, what gets taught.
0: Yeah. Um, so either, um, is there anything either that the universities or something we can do from a, a policy standpoint um, that makes it so that we, you know, we can potentially start to even out some of these um, differences in, in academic preparation, perhaps, um, you know, a, a change in the way we um, admit students or. or um, s- some other change um, in, in what we view as academic preparation, do you think those those are um, adequate um, adequate markers.
1: Well, I think it might be one of the first steps is to be honest to students about um, their chances of success. And, I, you know, I think there are real concerns about stigmatizing um, students. Like, so um, you might not necessarily tie that to race, per se. But what you can say is if you're going to come to this college, given your test scores and grades, regardless of your race, here's your probability that you'll be actually finish in the major you wanted to major in. Then students can make up their own minds as to what they want to do. And if they look at those probabilities say, my goodness, I have a very low probability of finishing in the sciences and that's what I wanted to major in. I can do one of two things at that point. I can, uh, you know, I, I can invest in skills ahead of time so that when I get to that selective college, I'm better prepared. I think that summer before you start college is a great time to acquire those skills that maybe you're a bit behind on. But the other thing you might do is say, well, I want to go to a college where I'm going to have a higher chance of finishing in that major. So given I can see how my test scores and grades line up with completion probabilities, now I can make a more informed decision. I suppose the third option is say, well, I just want to go to this really selective school and, and I'll, I'll switch my major, um, but I think having that sort of information uh, would really help make the market much more efficient. Universities just don't want to provide that information because they don't—they're more concerned with making sure that they have a diverse student body than taking care of those those students.
0: All right, um, so next I wanted to ask you about a, a central dilemma of mine with regards to affirmative action. Obviously colleges like Harvard, um, which take a, a holistic approach to admissions are right to consider um, contextual factors in admissions decisions. So students with varying backgrounds and, and financial situations won't have had the same opportunities and obviously that must be taken into account. Um, what I fail to understand, however, is why colleges tie such factors to students' ethnicity or race. So on average, um, Asian American households have Uh, higher incomes than African-American households. Um, Although there are many disadvantaged Asian-American students, just like there are many um, well-off African-American students. Um, If if colleges want to make admissions as fair as possible, why not just evaluate uh, on a pure um, case-by-case basis and take race out of the equation entirely?
1: It's interesting because we go back to like the Fisher, uh, Texas case one of the arguments that Texas made in defending their policies was that they needed enough high-income um, African-Americans to, and that argument, which I was sort of stunned that they made it even more stunned that it, um, it ended up being somewhat accepted was that those guys provided a bridge uh, across, across races. Part of um you know, why I took the cases is, you know, just see how you, these policies work. And one way that these policies work in in, in my mind, a very odd way is that you get a very large bump if you're African-American, you get a smaller bump if you're disadvantaged. But if you're African-American, you do not get that disadvantaged bump. So it actually, the affirmative action policy favors rich African-Americans more than poor African-Americans. And you might think, well, th- there is a, a potential reason for doing that, that if you give somebody too many bumps, then they're going to be too far behind when they enter uh, college. But it points to uh, um, universities sort of being able to feel good about themselves from the perspective of achieving racial diversity, but it's it's a policy that benefits um people with means. There was actually a a study done, blinking on the date, but they basically found that um, over 40% of African-Americans at the Ivy League schools, the sample sizes weren't great because this was a survey, but over 40% were actually first or second generation immigrants. So it's really pointing towards In my view, it can easily distract from the hard work that needs to happen, uh, helping descendants of slaves uh, get to a good place in society. And that involves making serious human capital investments. And I think affirmative action can uh, work to distract from that. Um, At least I have mixed feelings about affirmative action partly for that reason.
0: And I think that that piece of information right there um, is the most crucial. Um, obviously, a lot of people that are in in favor of affirmative action view it as some sort of equalizer, right? Um, you, you see that um, when when you look at distributions in income or or just average income by race, you'll see that um, the the average. Um, income for um, black households is significantly lower um, than for white households and that disparity is even bigger for um, asian american households same thing with um, you know the number of asian americans who went to college so you will have probably fewer first generation students Um, among Asian American or white households. So I think when someone would look at those disparities, it would be quite easy to just um, gloss over that data and say, well, okay, affirmative action makes sense because if you have black students who are coming primarily from disadvantaged backgrounds and Asian American students who are coming um, primarily from very well-off backgrounds um, with college-educated parents, Obviously, colleges want to provide, you know, a a benefit. They want to help students who haven't had as many opportunities in life um, to get ahead, right, and and to get on to to provide some sort of equality of opportunity. But that that piece of information is really striking, um, where the what what the affirmative action system, as it stands currently, does it it prioritizes rich um, African American students who probably have had, you know, more opportunities than poorer African American students. And somehow penalizes poorer African American students. It seems like it imbalances it, it students once again. So it, there's that, that fairness, this, this guy's of fairness that um, is is accompanied by affirmative action programs. It, it just doesn't seem to exist. So I mean that that seems just wildly wildly out of proportion to me.
1: That's right. And you actually see the same thing at UNC. So UNC um, it operates more through uh, first generation college. And there you can see, again, a very large bump if you're black, a small bump, if you're first-generation college, but if you're black, you do not get the first-generation college bump. Um, And that's true both in the out-of-state and the in-state pools. You might think there would have been a distinction there because because out-of-state admissions is so much more competitive, those students, it actually splits uh, the conservative argument against affirmative action in half. The out-of-state preferences for African Americans are way bigger than the in-state preferences. Um, so, from a fairness perspective, the out-of-state preferences are, are much less fair. Um, but those students still come in because it's so much more competitive in those uh, in the out-of-state pool. Those students still come in having much better credentials than their in-state counterparts. So you don't have to worry as much if they're going to make it in the classroom. Uh, So from a mismatch perspective, um, that we'd be more concerned about the in-state affirmative action. But even in the out-of-state pool where you know that they're going to be able to do the work, they still don't get that, if you're Black, you don't get that first-generation college bump or at least it's seriously uh, mitigated.
0: And I think um, what's somewhat surprising, obviously, the the court ruled in in favor of Harvard um, in that case, um, and and I think there have been other other such cases with regards to affirmative action where where the court has upheld it. Um, do you think that there's any probability of, of being able to challenge affirmative action on an institutional level um, via the court system? Um, I, I I'm just wondering how much of this is the court's um, willingness to protect. Um, you know private institutions like harvard um you know j- just wanting to say that well that they are private institutions and they should have the right to set their admissions policy and do whatever it wants um even if we don't necessarily perceive it as being fair or even if we think that you know there's strong evidence that they're discriminating on the basis of race um you know essentially they're a business and they can do whatever they want um do you think it's it's the court trying to uphold those rights or um is it just a fundamental belief in affirmative action not Discriminating against race, even in the face of overwhelming uh, mathematical evidence.
1: I, I think it's uh, in the at the lower court rulings. It was really about preserving affirmative action. Um, I mean, to me, it was very what was the Harvard rulings especially disappointing because I think you could have easily ruled that. Look, uh, we're going to keep affirmative action, but you got to stop discriminating against Asian Americans relative to white students. Um and that uh that was that was surprising. I, I don't think they, they needed to do it to do it that way. With regard to the private public trade-off, I mean it is interesting. Uh I mean, I don't really have a comment about you know how the Supreme Court will rule, but it is interesting that they did merge the cases. So you have a public university and a private university. You can see that things like funding is often tied, federal funding is often tied to certain behaviors by Universities. So, Title IX provided uh, an example of that. And some universities, you know, not taking funding from the federal government because of, of their beliefs. So, at that time, like Bob Jones University had this crazy policy of not allowing interracial dating. And so, the, the federal government basically said, you can't uh, have that policy if you want federal funding. Um, you know, to me, giving money to a place that's uh, discriminating against Asian-Americans doesn't seem that great either. Um, Where action lines up and that, people are going to have their own opinions. Um, But I I think that my hope is that we're going to see more transparency. You know, I think one of the interesting things that came out of the case is seeing how the legacy and athlete preferences worked. Those things, um, that is exactly what you said, the private these institutions can choose to do what they want in terms of freedom of association. The reason uh, race is different is because of Title VI, which basically said, you know, you can't be discriminated on the basis of race. Legacy status is not a protected class like that. But things like those legacy preferences, I don't think they survive if affirmative action doesn't survive. They're already a bit um, unpopular. But if, now if you're going to not give racial preferences and still give legacy preferences, which which primarily benefit white applicants, I just don't think that uh, it will be politically feasible for those preferences to, to survive in the absence of affirmative action.
0: Okay. Um, And finally, I wanted to switch gears a little bit and talk to you about a recent paper you co wrote on school choice vouchers, um, which involved um, experimental validation in rural India. Um, So, can you please tell us a bit more about what this experiment was set up to find? Um, I I found it very interesting. And and how, if at all, the conclusions can be used to create more effective policy around school choice in the United States?
1: Yes. So, India India is a very interesting environment, um, in part because What you end up paying for public schools is actually more in per pupil spending than what you get at the private schools. And they actually have a really big problem with the teachers even showing up to some of these public schools. So from that perspective a voucher program automatically is going to be very successful there. There's a sense in which the work I'm doing here connects with the Harvard case in the following way. People have done these sort of randomized uh, experiments. And that will allow you to say, okay, we're going to give these people a voucher and see what happens. And that will allow you to evaluate that particular program, but it wouldn't really allow you to evaluate alternative voucher programs. So it's either an either-or type of situation as opposed to thinking about the nuance of if we gave more or, or less of a voucher, what would actually happen? So that's where we're trying to have a a model of how people make uh, their schooling decisions where we don't use the data from the voucher experiment. And then the point is to see, given that model, how well can we predict what actually happened in the voucher experiment? And if it does a reasonable job with that, then we can say, okay, with this model, we can use it to forecast alternative voucher experiments. So what the paper that you've looked at does is it was actually in some sense a pre-commitment to say, okay, we're not going to look at the data that actually had the voucher data in it. We're going to use the control villages, uh, develop some models and then see which models are actually able to uh, predict what happened in the treatment villages.
0: And so um, when you talk about vouchers, um, do you mean, School choice vouchers in the in in, in the conventional senses, and um, students have or well um, families can can choose any school, public or or private, to which to send their children.
1: Uh, so not any school, but close. Um, so universe, um schools had to be willing to take the voucher. So there's gonna be some a, a small fraction of super high end schools who're like that's not enough for us because it was not one of those cases where if you took the voucher, that had to be the full payments you couldn't say okay you just get a discount now and you've got to pay some money on top of that you had to actually take take the kit
0: right um and if i'm not mistaken um there are already some Scandinavian countries with um, school choice vouchers already in place um do, do the results in this case um, appear to have parallels with countries that are already using this sort of system
1: i'm actually not that familiar um with what happened in the Scandinavian context. Um, but what I can say is that in the US, there's always these concerns about um, cream skimming, even that includes with charter schools as well. So people who are, tend to be against vouchers would be worried that you're gonna leave the most vulnerable behind. I think that uh, one of my former students, John Singleton, has a, a very nice paper on this to show how you can deal with those kinds of issues which is you subsidize poorer kids are actually more costly to educate as it turns out. So you give bigger subsidies for poor kids that can lead schools to locate in poor neighborhoods. Um, So I think you can get, you can deal with some of the concerns either in a charter school context or in a school voucher context by getting the subsidies right and varying the subsidies based on the family background.
0: Right um, because i think the results proved extremely um, promising in, in both the um, india experiment and in, in Scandinavian countries where this is already you know in place um and, and i think there have there, there's been quite a, a vocal um, support for this um, uh, on the on the political right in, in the united states um you know charter schools are, are something that has uh, have been you know quite hotly debated um so Boy, that's I,
1: interesting because charter schools These no-excuse charter schools have been some of the most successful things at reducing the black-white achievement gap. Um, It's not all charter schools that do this, but the ones that tend to um, focus on discipline, have longer school hours so they get more supervision, they actually have substantially uh, positive effects, especially for African-American students. So um, the beneficiaries here are, are are exactly the ones that you want from the perspective of, you know, cross-racial equity type of things.
0: Right. Um, and it's, it just seems to me like, um, almost almost like common sense then in, in in a way where why would you not want um students why, why would you want to keep students in, in suffering school districts um especially with the way funding is set up now where there's there's really no recourse that the school has to improve their facilities or to attract you know um, potentially uh, uh, other students who may bolster funding um so what's uh, what why would anyone you know politically right or left be be against this sort of system what, what are the arguments that we would be seeing?
1: Well, I think a lot of it has to do with teacher units um, and uh, you're making the environment, the school environment more competitive. So sometimes people might be concerned about, um, you know, things like, uh, well, now we're going to focus on tests or something that might be to the detriment of other factors. Uh, the other part that you can see is that uh, it's a little bit of uh, what's the word, you know, basically thinking that parents might not know how to make good choices. And so by giving them school choices, some uh, schools that are bad faith actors might take advantage of them. Those types of things seem like, at least the last one, seems like something you could easily deal with. Um, You might always have bumps in the road along the way, but um, as we move through, charter schools expanding, you could easily keep the ones that are doing a good job and cut the ones that aren't and have default options for for students that are good fits for them. I do think it is difficult to make um, some of these decisions. And but you can have that uh, be addressed by uh, choosing defaults that are actually really good uh, that would provide the best match between the school and the student.
0: Well, um, those are all the questions I I have for you today. Um, Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Um, It's been a real pleasure speaking with you. Great to talk with you as well. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.